I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Hi, and welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest shows by award-winning playwrights. We are back with our interview with Hannah Moscovich, the playwright behind the Governor General award-winning play, Sexual Misconduct of the Middle Classes. Hey, Chris. Hey, Laura. So, Chris, when you and I came up with the idea to do this podcast, we knew it would work and that the plays that we recorded would translate to audio dramas because playwrights put so much work into their craft. For those of you who aren't in the industry, you may not realize the steps that go into creating a show at the level of sexual misconduct of the middle classes. To create an impactful play like this, a writer has to write many outlines and drafts, often works with a dramaturg who's essentially a script editor. Then there are readings and workshops and rewrites and previews, and all this happens before the play hits the stage for a general audience. And so it seems like a very natural thing that playwrights who work so hard, who are so uh, disciplined and skilled, would make the leap from the stage to the screen. And indeed, playwrights are having a bit of a moment especially Hannah Moscovich. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Hannah has definitely proven herself to be a major playwright of significance, and her award-winning work has been produced all over the world. I think I noticed recently on Twitter that she, she mentioned her hit show, Old Stock, A Refugee Love Story, actually hit the 400th performance, which is just remarkable. But she isn't only a playwright. She has also written for radio, television, and as you mentioned, she's really broken out this past year. She's not only a writer, but also an executive producer on the hit series Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire, which has the enviable rating of 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's really gratifying to see how her talent is being recognized in such a big way, And the skills that she's acquired writing for the stage have so seamlessly transferred to the screen. We've interviewed Hannah several times for some plays that we've turned into audio dramas, including What a Young Wife Ought to Know and Secret Life of a Mother, which are both available on Play Me Now. I got to sit down and chat with Hannah over Zoom recently. We talked about her unique childhood, how the Me Too movement has had an impact on how others perceive her work, and how even at this place in her career, insecurity still plays such a major role in her life. This is my interview with Hannah Moscovich. 
Hannah, you've had such an incredible life already. Just reading about sort of your journey from childhood to now, it unfolds like a play in itself. Can you just talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and what growing up in your household as a young kid was like? I think it's fair to say we were unconventional. Um, (laughs) I don't think my job was that bizarre, but for sure, my parents were left wing. They were social activists. I learned a lot of folk songs. Um, there was a lot of, um, like, I remember that there was like a food sharing co-op in the neighborhood that they organized. They didn't wear shoes sometimes. <laughs> My first birthday with Rosa Laborde, another playwright, was an experiential birthday. So like they put us in vats of spaghetti and then vats of yogurt. <laughs> um, That's brilliant. It was pretty like summer of love informed childhood. Yeah. So how how did that childhood impact your work as a playwright? Um, I think, you know, I think it meant I had supportive parents who were happy to have a daughter who was like looking for what her life would be. I was just more interested in, you know, figuring out how to be an artist than I was in, you know, like holding down a job. Um, And they were willing to kind of ride that out with me and support me through that in a way that maybe more traditional or old-fashioned parents wouldn't have been. But beyond that, yeah, you know, they they taught me to think critically from a very young age. And dinner party conversation was always about politics. And it was fairly like, it was a highbrow household. There was a lot of literature read to me very young. I had a, came out of that house with a strong understanding of Marxist economics, um, you know, and what the price of poverty was on the psyche of an individual, you know, and my family, interestingly enough, probably prepared me for the current era because they were so forward thinking in terms of like, you know, my, my father said to me when I was very young that I must always walk alongside Martin Luther King and Elijah Harper they believed love was love. They had friends who were gay always over at the house who I knew and was comfortable with, obviously very young. Um, so in a weird way, like it felt like the whole world just caught up in the last five years with my childhood. Sure. You know, both your parents, uh, Alan Moscovich and Julie White, uh, they're well-known, and they're also vocal about being atheists. And yet you have such a strong connection to your Jewish heritage, and that, that's also reflected in your work. And I'm just curious, what, what brought you to that element and aspect of your life? Well, you know, and I would say, like, this is through my father, who's Jewish, um, and because Judaism is, you know, a religious and ethnic group, you have this connection to it that is in your DNA, and in your ethnicity that goes beyond the religion. And so you can kind of either or it. And I would say, you know, my father was very staunchly Jewish and staunchly atheist and saw no contradiction in that Mm -hmm. because it is, you know, Jewish is also like being Polish. You can't, uh, you can't remove it from yourself, whether you like it or not. But yeah, no, I would say like also I was raised very culturally Jewish, you know, it's a household that asked a lot of questions, you know, where it was acceptable, but also like normative for the kids in the household 
to never obey, to always be asking a million questions, to be argumentative, to stand up for themselves and to be equal to the parents, which is very, you know, sort of culturally Jewish. So I feel like I grew up with a really Jewish sensibility. Um, I also went to synagogue uh, regularly um, and went to Hebrew school four times a week. So that'll give it to you. You once said that there was a very strong Jewish sensibility to your work. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, I think one of the distinctions I'd say between like my culture and the mainstream culture when I was growing up or the Christian culture that I lived in was that Jews are always looking for the answers to the big questions. What's encouraged in Judaism is to ask questions that will bring you out of any delusion you might have had about reality and to believe in complexity and to, for instance, ask yourself why the Nazis went after the Jews the way they did, to ask yourself those questions like nobody's more interested in the Nazis than Jews. Um, We ask more questions about them than anybody else because we're so culturally programmed, I think, to, you know, question, ask questions, the big questions. So, um, yeah, I think that sensibility comes out in my writing that, that, that asking broad, broad questions, um, being interested in the existential, being interested in uh, the meta, all of that is you know, I mean, look, that belongs to many cultures, but I think that um, I claim it for Jews. <laughs> <laughs> As an audience member, you know, there's obviously a very clear social justice sensibility to the work that you do and a very clear feminist uh, sensibility to it. it. To me, as an audience member, I see that it seems to sort of boil down to power and imbalance of power. I don't know if that's something that you would agree with. And if so, can you talk a little bit about what drives a lot of that work through that lens? It's wild to hear you say that. If only because at different points in my career, I've been accused of not being political enough. Really? And I think that, yeah. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that gender inequality, when I began writing, wasn't viewed, it was disparaged as a way of viewing the world. Um, And so (laughs) I got tuned up for only being interested in the bedroom. And only being interested in gender politics, which was a wow. which was a pejorative yeah. at the time um, when I started out. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you know uh, what can I say? It's like um, we've already sort of covered it weirdly. But my parents were social activists, are social activists. My father wrote the book on poverty and what it does to your life. I see the world in terms of inequalities that are built in systemically um, because I was trained to do that from when I was very little. So it's a lens you kind of can't take off once you've seen it. It's really hard to um, swim in the world in a normal way once you've had your mother, and my mother's a feminist writer, once you've had your mother describe to you what's happening and how sexism is embedded in our culture, it's hard to unsee that um, because it's accurate. I encountered it out in the world and my mother had prepared me for it. So the world's kind of caught up to you, just like they eventually caught up to your parents as well. Sure. Yeah. And I used to, people used to be amazed that I was willing to call myself a feminist. Like they would talk about how brave brave it was that I was willing to use that word um, just because that word was so maligned. Wow. Yep. (laughs) And when I started out, for sure, like 
artistic directors weren't weren't interested in doing pieces about women, or they would say things yeah. to me like, "We already have a piece in the season about women's issues. Mm-hmm. We don't want another one." I have to say that's what excites me about your work is that. Uh, so many of the moments are very personal and about relationships between two people, but it has such a massive ripple effect beyond just those two people. And I think that's what makes it just so exciting. And it seems like all your work is very political, and that's why people want it. Maybe. <laughs> There's people who would like us to escape, and they yeah. maybe would not like my work. <laughs> I'm curious just about the name sexual misconduct in the middle class. Why did you choose that? And particularly for me, it's the word misconduct. I find a really interesting choice. What's the meaning behind the name? You know, because I wanted to talk about something that was systemic. You know, I was like, there's an entire class of people who we forgive for all sorts of behavior that's fairly fucked up. That's fairly dark. That's fairly dirty. Um, uh, <laughs> and it just feels broad, our forgiveness. I, you know, I feel like whole pieces of women's lives have yeah. fallen into silence because we're so comfortable with women being sexually assaulted. We're just, yeah. we're into it. We're like, yeah, that's our culture where women get sexually yeah. assaulted and never talk about it. We're just fine with that. It just means that like there's big chunks of many women's lives and many men too, who just, it just can't be spoken. And it's viewed as misconduct. Like it's cute. <laughs> well, that's how we viewed it, right? Yeah. Like we shifted blame onto women for so long and we've had a hard time throwing that off. And there's, you know, I think we're trying, like the whole world is fighting to mm-hmm. have that be vestigial rather than absolute. But I think it still holds, you know, uh, women are blamed for their own, uh, for any bad misconduct committed yeah. against them. Yeah. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, I think one time someone asked me, do you think she's the most misunderstood figure of the 20th, 21st, 20th century? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I was like, yeah, that's accurate. Like if you think back to how she was treated, it gives you a real picture of how we thought about. And I was listening actually to, oh my God, it was the Golden State Killer. And he started off on a 50 rape rampage all around California. And uh, rape wasn't even a felony then. It was a misdemeanor. Um, You're kidding. No. They were like cops giving a press conference about it. And they were like snickering because they had to say the word rape and they thought it was funny. So that's like, that was the 70s. So, you know, (laughs) we're we're cool with rape culturally. We really are. We're just, we think it's great. Yeah, We're really into it. We're comfortable with it. We don't think women have value. We don't think their lives have value. That's been really normal up until now-ish. You know what I find most interesting is there's been this massive sort of cultural shift with the Me Too movement. Yeah, you wrote this just before, I think, Me Too. And I'm wondering, how has that changed your relationship to the piece? Tremendously. So I will say this, like before uh, the Me Too movement happened, we were doing readings of it in Seattle. And the first readings I went into, I was, it seems so quaint now to say this, but I was so scared that the audience would hate the female Mm -hmm. character and me 
for exposing him because that's what we hated then. We hated Monica Lewinsky for exposing Bill Clinton. We didn't hate him for taking a 20-year-old intern into his office and fucking her face. We were fine with that. Sorry. With having okay. oral sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm not good at this. Uh, I'm not that's gonna, okay. I'm, swearing. I'm really swearing. <laughs> it's all good. Don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah, we were. We, we knew who to blame in that case. You know, yeah. like we were like, it's absolutely her fault. She tempted him. He is an innocent president of America. You know, she was the one who had all the power. He was just lured by her into her mouth. Yeah. All that shit, right? So I really thought when this play was presented in Seattle, like. I was in for it. What was interesting though, was it was the summer before me too. It was like, and it must've been in that atmosphere because the audience booed John at the end of the play. Okay. And it shocked me. Um, and then afterwards, a lot of women, all of whom are around college age, lined up and wanted to talk to me about it. And every single one of them said they'd had a similar yeah. experience, which was shocking. It was like yeah. all these women with a look of shock on their face, all saying to one another, oh, this is my experience too. And because our culture teaches us to kind of not believe, I think we all kind of believed and didn't believe each mm -hmm. other or something. It was this odd atmosphere of women coming into realizing and so then when the me too movement happened in some ways i felt unsurprised because you could feel it rising the temperature mm -hmm. rising in the culture like you know all of this stuff is happening in silence and yet it's becoming pressurized by the sheer fact of its volume you know i think something that you wrote in the script for the notes which really hit home, like clarified so much, which was when you said, this is not a love story. The only person here who's in love is John. Why were you compelled to put that in the notes? I was concerned about, like I say in the notes, I'm less concerned with how an audience responds. They're going to respond how they do. And they're going to respond based on their own you know, biases and their own needs and their own life experiences. But I didn't want a play that was going to reflect a misogynist view of women. I didn't want a production of the play that would. Yeah. And I think that it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that what you're watching is a love story because that is how John tells it. But from Annie's perspective, it's not. It's somewhere between an experience and a trauma, I would say. Yeah. And what makes it so interesting is that you did write it through the eyes of John. Can you mm. talk about that choice? Yes, it's a different question. And when you ask me that, a lot of things come up in my mind. I'm sure. like, how many men wanted to tell me after the play went up that I had not, that I had failed to write a feminist play because I had written it from the male point of view? And why didn't I just write it from a female point of view? But it's a funny conversation to have with male audience members yeah. who maybe don't get to decide. Yeah. I wanted to because it felt like that's the point of view from which it happened. Mm-hmm for both characters and that is typical right like we're in a society you know and i know because i'm a storyteller that sees through the eyes of men yeah and that's our neutral point of view or our so-called neutral point of yeah. view and so it felt like that's how it happened and you get caught up in the narrative of the man who is grooming you that's yeah. how that goes and they tell you the narrative and then you go with their narrative. And so it felt like given that's how these relationships usually 
happen as a man is telling you it's okay and culture is telling him it's okay. Yeah. A little bit bad, but okay. Yeah. Generally speaking, you know, also you shouldn't smoke. <laughs> you know, and yeah, like there's all yeah. sorts of shit you, you shouldn't do that's like minor, right? Yeah. Does that answer the question? Kind <laughs> it <of>? does. Yes. <laughs> Of why I chose to tell it from his point of view. Because these yeah. stories happen from male point of view. And then the point for me was to switch it from a male point of view to a female point of view. So you could see the yeah. difference. Because I was interested in the difference. Yeah. It could have made the choice to tell it entirely from a female point of view. But that wouldn't have served the purpose that I was serving. Yeah. It was to show you one and then to reverse it and show you the other. Yeah. And, and it also really throws everything off balance when you're looking at something through the eyes of a perpetrator as opposed to a victim. It suddenly makes everything feel so much more uncomfortable and turns everything upside down. Yeah. I think for me, even hearing you say that he's a perpetrator or hearing her called the victim is surprising because the first series of interviews I would have done about this play were not like this one. A lot of men go and see the play and then they want to say to me, but he's done nothing wrong and they're upset. And they're upset because I've asked them to look at the female point of view at the end of the play after they went with a play where they felt like they understood it and they were with it and they saw themselves in John. And that was my point in a way is to have people go and see it and be like, this is, you know, this is what our world is like. And then to ask us to go like, but if you look at it from this point of view, it's actually really bad shitty it's really bad what our world is you know it's really bad that we are looking at these things this way you know and that Mm -hmm. somehow we think a 19 year old girl is a temptress and (laughs) you know and that she is the bad one and that you know she is the one that somehow lured him into having sex when he's the grown man who knows what he's doing and she's the child who is trying to figure out the adult world and he's teaching her what the adult world is, which is, yeah. his view is it's okay for older men to groom young women for sex. Uh, uh, early on, you said that at the first public reading, uh, you were worried that the audience was going to hate Anna. And I'm just curious about that. I had actually not that long before that listened to a female newscaster come on and like talk about, a young woman who had been raped at a party by a bunch of footballers in the States. And what she was saying was, it just, it's so awful to imagine that these young men's lives are going to be wrecked by this, you know, and that they're not going to be able to go on and play football. And I think that we forget that that's what the world was like even five years ago, you know, that we were very concerned about what rape would mean for the lives of the men who did the raping. You know, and that was the information. And I think like, unless it's somebody who like rapes you at knife point in a back alley and we know they're a villain in that way, if there's any sense that it could have been, if there's any way we can imagine that it's her fault because she got drunk and she was there, like if there's any way to do that, we we do that. That's what we choose to do culturally and so I was very worried about it and it was also at a time where like you know sometimes professors were being called out for having sex with their students and then usually what would happen is there would be a lot of concern about the man's career and how storied his career was and 
the amount of a claim he had and how that was going to be tarnished by this claim that probably wasn't even true. And also to what degree was she culpable in it all? And so all of that was all how we viewed it back then. And that was just culturally very normative. So when I had a character who was calling out a man um, and switching the perspective at the end, I assumed that the response would be, why is she exposing him? Is this some sort of uh, revenge? And and in fact, some of the people who read the play at first thought that. They would say, oh, well, she wanted to take revenge against him for not writing about her in his book. Yeah, That was why she was calling him out, as opposed mm-hmm. to because, you know, it had a negative impact on, on her life and it confused her feelings around sex and love for the rest yeah. of her life. <laughs> yeah. You know, but these weren't things we used to think about. We didn't think about it from the female point of view. We didn't think about Monica Lewinsky's life. We didn't give a fuck. We didn't care about her life. Yeah. We didn't care about that girl who uh, was raped while unconscious at a party by the whole football team. We just mm-hmm. didn't. Nobody cared. We just cared about like, how was this going to impact the life of the man? The view was, I forget who it was. It was some big deal person was accused of raping a young woman in his hotel room. And at the time, what got said was, you know, but she was 19 and she was going back to his hotel room. Um, didn't yeah. she know that what she mm-hmm. was in for as though like just by going to a room, she should have known that sex was the only possible next step. And yet at 19, I was fairly innocent and I looked up to adults still. And if they told me to do a thing, I did it because they were the ones in charge of me. So for me hearing that story of, well, how could she have not known what would happen if she went back to a footballer's hotel room? I was like, I wouldn't have known at that age. Yeah. So all of that is to say, yeah, I was really scared um, that everyone would hate Annie. Um, But I think I had every reason to be scared at the time. I think the cultural shift was just happening, like, Mm -hmm. right at the time when I was thinking about it. So I got lucky. Uh, my name is Chris Tolley, and you're listening to Play Me and our interview with Hannah Moscovich. We will be back right after this. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is exciting to have you part of Play Me because, of course, you have such a rich history with CBC radio drama. You are the head writer of Afghanida, which people still talk about. Can you talk a little bit about those days and what it was like working on radio drama for anyone who uh, hasn't had that experience? I worked for Greg Nelson and Adam Peddle, who were two of the co-creators of the series. And also they were head writers for the first, I think, four years. I was writing episodes for them for the show. And I think because of them, I learned how to write episodically or episodically, but a, a serialized long 
turn series show. So I'm super grateful that I got to work on it. And I also loved, deeply loved working at CBC Radio Drama. I loved the studios there and I like loved coming in and working with the actors. So I was sorry when it all got washed away, but it seems to have been reinvented now as podcasting and audio drama, which I'm delighted by, you know, I would sometime love to write an audio series because I like the medium so much. I mean, writing in television, I'm just so aware of what the budgets are in television. You know, I know what it's like now to be on it. Shows that have a hundred million dollars put into them, which is what you need if you're going to do something like Afghanistan, where we, you know, crashed helicopters into buildings. You can't do that easily in television. You can't tell a story about war easily. It's too expensive visually. So I was always so grateful for a medium that, it was so expansive and weirdly for it being radio was super imagistic. Like it Mm -hmm. felt like you were putting images in people's brains. So anyway, I just feel like I got the very best possible training in, uh, (laughs) in how to do an an art form that is now almost defunct, but being revived. Yeah. And I, I think you've nailed it, which we talk about how radio drama really is like the most visual of all mediums, because you can do anything. If you can imagine it, if you can think it, you can make it happen. Can you talk a bit about the studio and what it was like to record in the studio? Yeah, I just had such a happy sensory memory of it. It's funny that I do in a way, because we were churning out those episodes. We were going hot off the press feed. you know you would be writing up until the last minute trying to get something that was any good so that you could bring it to the actors the next day and record but I think we were working with an extraordinary cast getting to work with them was so astonishing and I think as a playwright coming from a medium where you work with people one time and you don't really you can tailor to people's voices to a point but then to work in a medium like radio drama or and then television where like you have and it's such a gift to a writer to be able to tailor to the voices that you've got and know ahead of time like ooh, this actor is going to nail this monologue or this joke or this dialogue they're gonna kill it and you know because you've seen what they can do and so you start to be able to really support performance other mediums just fall slightly short of that ability to be able to just support the most gorgeous performance. And you've, and you've really taken that through into the next chapter in your career, which is, of course, writing for television. You are one of the executive producers and a writer for Interview with a Vampire, which I, I think I saw on social media just recently. It was number one in Canada right now. It's, it's a huge hit. And I'm just wondering, what, what was it like to make that transition into television and how is the craft of writing different for television? Mm. So the shift is like any shift, I'd say, to a new medium. You thrash around trying to figure the new medium out. And for a long time, I would be writing things about camera angles and felt stupid about it because I knew so little. I mean, in the last few years, I've sort of like accrued some experience now. So I feel a little bit less like I'm being forced to learn a new medium in front of everybody yeah. in a humiliating way. You know, television, I'm like, it's more like radio drama, but less like theater is imagistic and you can write so much in image. 
I think also television, what's interesting to me moving between mediums is that there's a whole different philosophy or a whole different paradigm around how writing should happen. And it's like kind of hidden in the premise of the mediums. So in theater, we really think there's one author and all ideas come from that author. And also a lot of the time in playwriting, the design of the story itself is linked to its execution. So you do both at once. A lot of playwrights don't outline, for instance. In television, there's a team of writers and you all come up with ideas communally and then you all go and write one episode, but then that episode will be rewritten by the showrunner to make it sound like it's the voice of the show. So it's just an entirely different paradigm about how writing happens and also execution and design are totally separated so you design the whole story on little cue cards and then you go and execute it afterwards so i think you know moving between the mediums you just have to acclimatize yourself to an entirely different way a a whole different process of making writing happen so i think you know it, it took some for me to figure that out for sure but i feel like working on radio drama was a really good intermediary step. And, you know, I think like the big thing with TV, honestly, is it's the feels different as a medium is that the viewership is just so massive. And so you're like, you really are informing culture. Um, You're defining the sexual appetites of a generation by putting certain actors in lead roles. Right. And so then you have to be, I think more conscious of the choices you're making and who and how they they're going to have an impact. And I mean, I love it. It's great to have access to a mass media that gives hockey a run for its money. (laughs) (laughs) I love theater because it's live, but I love TV because it's global, you know? Writing is a tough gig. Like it's not, (laughs) there are a lot easier things you could do in life. Like why the hell do you do this? Oh, I mean, I feel like there are genuinely tough gigs. It's so Canadian of me to say that. Since I've been back in Canada, because I've just been in LA for four months, I've been like, oh my God, Canadians apologize constantly. It's amazing. Also, a sidebar, the switch from the LA airport, it's just an assault of sound. And then you come to the Halifax airport and it's 500 people standing in total (laughs) silence waiting for their bags it's so weird it was so weird just sonically that i recorded the sound of the halifax airport so i could share it with my american colleagues because i was like this is what it sounds like when 500 canadians stand together like it's so (laughs) in drop silence anyway sorry what did you (laughs) uh why do you write Why do I write? Oh, yeah. And I went on a tangent about how, like, of course, I'm Canadian, so I have to apologize first for the fact that there are much harder jobs in the oil sands occurs to me just offhand. I think what's hard to me about writing is that it's a little bit unpredictable. So you can have, you know, a certain number of hours that you can write a day, but you can't entirely control or you can't at all control what you're going to write in that time. And if you're going to get anywhere, the tension and strain of that on a tight turnaround becomes really extreme. So then you have to try and find a way to calm yourself down and believe that the writing is going to come, even though you can get really stuck trying to write a good scene quickly, especially if you're holding yourself to incredibly high standards, like Interview with the Vampire does. It's a show that has 
really good language, a beautiful, gorgeous, poetic language. The showrunner had an early training in poetry, which you can wow. hear in how he writes. And, you know, we're holding ourselves to writing memorable scenes and we're holding ourselves to telling good jokes and we're holding ourselves to surprising original action and characters. So it's a lot to encompass in one draft on a deadline where you only have so much time. So right now, I really feel what's hard about writing. And actually, for me, the main thing that's hard about it is trying to do it quickly. Yeah. And really ridiculously well. Wow. Yeah. But the rest of the time, I actually find writing quite euphoric. Why? Not right now, though. (laughs) (laughs) Why euphoric? Can you? Uh, Because there's a beautiful moment where I lose myself in it. And so it feels like anything where you lose yourself to it. Any anything that you can imagine that you could do, whatever that thing is for you, where you just lose all sense of your own consciousness and you just are absorbed in something and the time goes by like, honey, like that. It feels very good to me. But not now at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a good drug, what you described earlier. This this is sounds a little difficult. Yeah, this is just a little bit more of a grind. So from what I see as an outsider, everything you touch turns to gold. Just looking at some of the things that have been written about you, I constantly see Wonder Kid and Indie Sensation. And it just seems from an outsider's point of view, every time you put your fingers down on a keyboard, you create gold. And I know that's probably not the truth. And that's not what's really happening. Can you... Just so we know you're human, can you talk about some of the disappointments you've had? So the first thing I should say is I struggle for confidence a lot of the time. And I feel as though there may be at the center of my psyche a dark abyss into which all praise falls. I don't ever feel good about myself (laughs) that sounds so totalizing but i struggle to feel like i'm a good writer and i i struggle to feel like i'm a good writer yeah that's very true of me i think i'm actually understating it probably but i you know i've had lots of what felt like disappointments i mean i can say the first play i did at summer works festival you know was an unmitigated failure and uh, it's unremembered now, I think. And we canceled shows because nobody came. Yeah, and it wasn't good. I wasn't like a good writer. And I spent a year after that feeling like I would stop writing because I had failed so spectacularly. That was 2003. And then 2005, I put on a show called Essay and that went better. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's in my yeah. 20s. Like one can expect that. But I would say like all through my life, I perceived... I've been rejected for more grants than I've gotten. I don't apply so much for grants anymore because I'm writing in television, but I can tell you both post-democracy and Fall on Your Knees, which are going to go up this year, um, both of them were rejected for multiple. Seriously? Back in the day when I would have been applying for grants. Wow. And probably for each of those 10 years ago, I applied for grants. I just took a long time to write them. Yeah, I'm being careful saying this because I don't apply for grants anymore because I feel as though that 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 pool of money should go to other writers. Yeah. I have 
a source of money. I'm okay for money. I feel like there's been innumerable failures. And in fact, I'll say this, um, one of the worst ones, it's funny, it's going to sound not like a failure, but of course it's me. So I find a way to frame it that way. But (laughs) I (laughs) was up for a national award. And I got a call saying I hadn't received the award, which is normal and happens a lot. And in that case, I had a lot of respect for my colleagues who were nominated alongside me. And so I felt like whoever got it, I would feel good about it. Yeah. What was hard was actually that the person on the other end of the line, the jury chair said to me, you know, we decided not to give it to you because we found your work was not revolutionary enough. Really? So I did that thing that you do in a movie where like you say goodbye and then I held the phone against my head as it went to dial tone. Like I was like so fucked up. I was so sorry. My lips were white. I was so shocked by it because it felt like it caught me as a comment. No, I had to get on an airplane to Edmonton. Like I was going straight to the airport after that call. And then I sat on the plane to Edmonton for four or five hours and I didn't move. Like I couldn't move. I was in so much pain, which is both, you know, childish to a certain degree. And, but it was also kind of purifying. I was like, okay, I now have to like find a way to take that, (laughs) shut that knife out of my body do I still want to be a writer? But I think about that moment constantly. I always have that in my head that just because it was a whole jury of my peers had sat around and their conclusion was, your work is not revolutionary enough for us to give you this award. And so it hurt more than almost anything. But I always, you know, I feel like that's a failure, like a total one in a weird way that I had not convinced a jury of my peers that my work was worthwhile. Yeah. So, you know, I've had really big failures and those are just like, those are easy. Like those are the fastest ones that come off my tongue. But I would say also I've had endless bad reviews. I've never had a play that wasn't both badly and well reviewed. I've never had a piece that was just universally acclaimed. I've never (laughs) had that in my life. (laughs) Nobody has ever been like, you get a pass for this one. (laughs) Everyone's been like, well, I don't know. (laughs) This one's underwhelming. I've always gotten one person at least who's been like, "Mm, no. (laughs) That was Hannah Moskovich talking about her award-winning play, Sexual Misconduct of the Middle Classes, which is available now on Play Me. I love hearing from Hannah. She's one of my favorite playwrights. I think we've made that pretty clear on this podcast. And I always feel like I learn something when I hear her interviewed or when I read one of her plays. We'll be back next with the Dora Award-winning dark comedy Wildfire by David Paquette, translated by Leanna Brody. Claudette, Claudia, Claudine, Carol, Callum, and Caroline all have two things in common. Names that start with the letter C and that they're haunted by a family history of childhood trauma. They do what they can to survive, sometimes by baking cookies, sometimes by playing fantasy games, and sometimes by smashing a hammer into a TV. And don't forget, you can listen to Play Me on CBC Radio 1 every Sunday night at 9 p.m., and Wednesdays at 11 p.m. And if you're enjoying Play Me, why don't you consider checking out another series from CBC? One that Laura and I really enjoy is Welcome to Paradise. Anna Maria Tremonti kept her past a secret for over 40 years. As one of Canada's most respected journalists, she has a reputation for being fearless and hard-hitting. She's reported from some of the world's most dangerous conflict zones, but none were as immediately threatening 
as her life at home. This podcast gives you a powerful look at one woman's story of domestic abuse, why she stayed, and how she ultimately freed herself. You can find it, along with all other CBC podcasts, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me through Google or Apple Podcasts. By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Mary Chris Rivera. A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani, and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.